well, when, when our children were little, I mean really little, when they were babies, uh, I used to sort of wish for the day when they would begin to talk, um, to tell me what they were thinking. Often I wished it because I wanted to know how to stop them from crying, right? What is going on here? How do I stop this? But often I just looked in their little faces and I thought, what's going on in that little baby head of yours? I can't wait for the day that you will talk to me and tell me what you're thinking. And someone once told me that you spend the first year of your children's lives trying to get them to walk and talk and the next 17 trying to get them to sit down and be quiet. And our kids are eight and 10 now and I'll just say they're not so wrong. But when our son Drew was a baby, I used to walk with him around the house sometime, trying to encourage this gift of speech to emerge. And I would walk from room to room and hold him up, and I would, I would point to things in the house to encourage him to learn what objects were. And I would, I would point to something. I would tap it. I would say, window, window. And then I'd move on to something else, bed or light or fan. And one day I took him tiny baby, not talking yet at all, into our master bathroom. And that bathroom was decorated all over with stars. Stars on the shower curtain, stars on the soap dispenser, stars on the hand towels. Um, Looking back, that was less of a decorating choice and more because I'm not a morning person. And I think I just needed some kind of liminal space where I could stay in denial for a little while that it was actually day. Those who work with me every day in the chapel office know not to talk to me before coffee. So one day, I I took little Drew into the master bathroom and then into the, the little room within a room where the toilet sat. And in that room, a large brass star, part of the decorating scheme, hung on the wall right over the toilet. Um, I had been walking around pointing to things, and I thought that in this room I would walk in and I would tap the star and I would say star so he could learn that important word. So walking into those tight quarters, I kind of balanced the baby on one hip and, and wedged myself in, and I reached out and touched the heavy star. And unbeknownst to me, the nail that had been holding it in the sheetrock, had been working itself loose, uh, probably with the vibrations of each flush in that room. So evidently, my, my light touch on the star was the last straw that was needed to pull that nail out of the sheetrock. And before I could even say the word star, the star fell thankfully missing the toilet by an inch. But it fell right on top of a metal trash can, also decorated with stars. And the metal on metal rang out in that tiny space, and it was like an explosion set forth. I mean, it was a loud boom. And I I, I was shocked. I couldn't move for a moment. And you know, Babies sometimes cry at loud noises, so I I quickly glanced over to see what effect it had on Drew's little ears, but surprisingly, he didn't even whimper. We were both in shock. We just stood there. And after a moment, I started to think, how do I make sense of this for him? Like, what, what word should I say 
to let him know I don't have to comfort him. He's not crying. What word do you say to explain what has just happened? And so after a long pause, I just looked at him and I said, uh-oh, uh-oh. And then we stood there for another minute, and then we just moved on. And over time, the naming game began to have its effects. Drew began to repeat words back to me. His first word was ball, and then duck. And then one of his earliest words, of course, was star, because there were probably so many of them, except my husband took that to me, and it was a sign of an early Dallas Cowboys fan. But several months later, when he had begun to speak in tiny little bits and pieces, several months later after that initial encounter with the falling star on the bathroom wall, we were making the rounds again, this time with him saying some words back to me. And so I carried him back into that same bathroom, into that tiny little space where the star hung on the wall now with a greatly reinforced nail in the wall. And I lifted my hand I wasn't going to touch it this time, but I lifted my hand, and before I could even say the word star, my tiny baby said, uh-oh. <laughs> well, that confirmed all of my suspicions. My child was a genius. <laughs> it's like Stephen Hawking with a pacifier, like Einstein in pampers. I just knew. This kid was brilliant. He had taken an object and reached back into his memory, which was not yet a year long, and he made a connection between an object and an event, and he communicated that memory. What brilliance. I mean, in reality, I was witnessing like a normal stage of human development. But that's what parents do when their children go through normal stages. We believe that they are brilliant and exceptional. That metal star had become more than a shape to him. It had become a memory. Now when he looked at the space where it hung, a distant bell rang in the back of his mind. It recalled him back months into his limited experience, and he thought, something happened here, not just a shape, but an uh-oh. And then I realized this was a milestone of a different kind. For the first time, instead of just teaching him words about objects, we were making memories together. When we walked through the house, when we walked through life, when we were naming things and touching things and experiencing things, we weren't just going to experience a common language. We were making a shared story. And the house he lived in, the things he looked at, the experiences he had in life were all more than limited physical objects now. They were the beginnings of his story, and I would get to witness that. We would build a story together. I never knew that such a mundane moment could thrill me so deeply as the beginning of someone's story. God must enjoy watching us, don't you think? I mean, he must love seeing us take experiences and make them into memories. I can picture God gazing with joy on all of us as we put together the pieces that he's placed in our lives. As he says to us, when we begin to make sense of things, that's right, 
that's it, and that's me. He, he's with us when we go places, when we meet people, when we form memories, when we see familiar objects, and at some point, we put it together. Instead of just learning the facts or recognizing things, we begin making memories, living a common story with God. And the Bible is full of God's declarations that he wants to see this happen. He wants us to approach life and set up spaces, making memories with him, marking our experiences. Build an altar here. Raise up a stone. March around these walls. Shake the dust from your feet. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Do this in remembrance of me. In God's presence, places and objects and events become more than what we can see. They become stepping stones of memory, a story that we experience. And when our memory forms, it forms us. When God does something significant in our lives, he wants us to remember because memory shapes us and our relationship with him. What we remember about the past shapes our future. What will you remember about today when the present becomes the past? What are you internalizing about this service, your, your classes, your, your life at Asbury? Do you recognize God in this story, this story that you're making with him today? When God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, he knew that this would become their defining story. Not just one generation's story, but the story of all the lifetimes to come in that family. See, their slavery had lasted for hundreds of long years. And so the memory of being rescued from it needed to stretch out as far in front of them the way that that story stretched all those generations back. It was deep and defining. 400 years of being one thing, of being a slave, is long enough to make you forget you've ever been anything else, right? It's to have your identity so chiseled as one thing that you were never created to be. It's to forget the, the freedom to make your own decisions, the freedom to make your own money, the freedom to make your own life. And 400 years of whip scars etched so deep means that you might just forget the story of how you came to be slaves in the first place and that it was not God's intention for his people. And so when God answered the cries of his people who had been enslaved for all those generations, he made a really big spectacle out of it, right? It was meant to be unforgettable. Let my people go, Moses stuttered. And when Pharaoh laughed at the very thought, plague after plague after plague, you think those plagues were memorable? You think people told stories about those for a few generations? And when the Israelites avoided the last, most devastating plague, the death of the firstborn child in every family, they did so by obedience. They obeyed. They painted the blood of a lamb over their doors so that death would pass over, pass by. And Pharaoh told them to get out, good riddance, but then changed his mind, right? And chased them right up against the Red Sea. 
And when God parted it and walked his people through and then drowned Pharaoh and his horses and men right behind them, you think that made an impression? Were people talking about that story for a while? When God got them out of this situation alive, he wanted their thanks in the form of memory. Remember, he would tell them, remember, you were once slaves in Egypt. Remember a fear so great that it drove you right into a sea. Remember how the Lord your God rescued you. Remember that God is bigger than Pharaoh, bigger than a sea, bigger than the chaos of having to face both of them at the same time and knowing only God can make a way. Can you remember that? I mean, having witnessed a spectacle so big, so powerful, so miraculous, you would think that holding on to that dramatic a memory would be an easy thing, like in everybody's family album. But they forgot. I mean, first they forgot how bad it really was when the chaos of traveling through the wilderness for all those years was too much to bear. They began to look back at Egypt and forget how bad it was. Oh, remember Egypt? I mean, that's where we had meat to eat, a bed to sleep in, water to drink. In Egypt, nobody made us march through the desert all day, Moses. Remember how great we had it? I mean, nothing like a beating sun and marching day after day to take the edge off of a memory of how bad things were, how bad slavery truly was in Egypt. That's delusional, isn't it, to point back at 400 years of slavery and say it was a good thing? That's the good life. Delusional. But we have this habit, too. It's like a coping mechanism of of downplaying how bad things were in the past. Our, Our hazy memories are a gift sometimes that protect us from how bad things really were. But God calls us to remember. If we don't remember how bad things really were, we will forget how good God is. A friend of mine grew up in Russia during the Cold War, and in elementary school, they practiced bomb drills daily by getting under their desks. They called Americans dirty and cruel, while my parents and their generation on the other side of the world were under their desks doing the same thing, calling the same names of them. And in high school, my Russian friend's drills evolved to see how fast he and his classmates could assemble and disassemble AK-47s. He remembers the days when communism fell. He says there was rejoicing for a while, but it, it didn't take too long for forgetfulness to slip in. Remember back in the good old days of communism? When everything was provided for us, people would say, back then the government gave us everything we needed, food and clothing and shelter, and now here we are left to fend for ourselves. My friend remembered those days too, but he also remembered the fear, the scarcity, the long lines just to get bread or clothing for your family, the dependency on someone you could not depend on. And he says he still struggles when he has to wait in a long line for something totally different all these years later, waiting to get into a movie theater, having a little panic attack, not knowing where your next meal is coming from as a child will set up 
a ball of chaos in your stomach. It'll put a grip of chaos on your throat, and sometimes that comes back, whether you wanted it to or not. Remember, fear and hunger in the present can kind of make you forget how bad things were. It makes the past blur with nostalgia until even slavery seems appealing, enticing. Weren't the good old days of communism great? Remember how good we had it back in Egypt? Those were the days. So first, God's people forgot how bad it was. And that made them forget how good God is. Losing our memories of how bad things were always means losing sight of how good God has been to us. We may not want to remember hard times, but God's goodness pulled us through. And that is too important a memory to forget. And the two are always connected. If we were to sit down, you and me, one-on-one, six feet apart, masks on, of course, and I asked you, what is the hardest time of your life that you have ever gone through? There would be a lot of incredibly powerful stories, wouldn't there? And there would be some tears. And there would be some gratefulness. Because, man, you're not there anymore. You made it. Here you are. That's part of that memory, too. What God did to bring you through. Gratitude is how we survive. Thanking God for what he has done is how we approach an uncertain present and future. Knowing that God was bigger than that tells me that God is bigger than this. Sometimes it was the desperation we felt in those situations that drove us straight into the arms of Jesus. When God brought us out of chaos, even if it wasn't a sea or a plague or an army full of chariots, chaos forced us out. And there was God at the edge of the sea, ready to make a way. God wanted his people to have this kind of memory. Remember, God continued to whisper. Remember you were slaves. Remember I rescued you. Remember. He whispered it, and he shouted it, and he commanded it. Don't forget this, God said. Look behind you to be sure you can still see it in your rearview mirror. If you don't remember where you came from, what is to prevent you from wandering back there again? Don't do it. You don't have to be slaves now to seek me with all your hearts. All you have to do is remember that you once were. Don't forget. Remember, remember, remember. And since God knew that the way to his people's hearts was through their stomachs and taste buds, he even created a meal to jog their memories. The Passover meal connected them with the moment of the worst and last plague in Egypt when death passed over their doors because of the blood of a sacrificed lamb. At that meal, they would eat lamb, paint blood, taste bitter herbs and salty water to remember bitterness and tears. At that meal, they would rehearse the whole story all over again, their slavery in Egypt, their desperate cries, their escape, God's answer, God's agency being the one who provided freedom. 
Remember, they would say to each other over full plates and full bellies. Remember when we didn't have anything but God in each other. Praise God. Love him today like you did that day. Don't lose your devotion when you lose your desperation. Only memory can do that for you. Taste the memories on this plate. Live them over and over as if it's happening to you fresh all over again. Every time you eat this meal, every year, remember, remember. And, and that meal of memories had a special audience. Children. Children were invited to sit at the grown-ups table. Children were invited to speak at the table, to ask questions. Why is this night not like all other nights? This meal was supposed to get a memory of the past into the generations of the future. For those who had never been to Egypt before, never journeyed through a desert, they were supposed to be brought into this story as if they had lived through it. If they could hold the memory of all that their people had been through, maybe they wouldn't have to go through it themselves. Maybe they could love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, just as their ancestors had loved when they crossed through the Red Sea. It was a meal of memories fed to children so that God's story could become their own story. We start out in faith thinking maybe the point is to make God part of our stories, right? What's your earliest memory of God? What's the hardest thing you've been through? Was God there? Is God part of your story? That's beautiful. That is what testimony is all about. But the truth is, it is even more important to find ourselves in God's story. If given the choice of focusing on whether or not God is part of your story or whether you are part of his, the second is far more important. Because which story you remember as you journey through your life will shape your future as you remember God's past. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to some Jews who were told believed in him. And, and these were people of the Passover story. And they were eagerly leaning in and listening to what Jesus was offering. And so he offered them a next step. Grow in your discipleship. So he says, this is in John 8, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And without warning, it's as if a loud bang echoes through this scene. Uh-oh. It creates an awkward moment in the conversation, an echoing pause, because the mention of freedom, and freedom has a funny way of doing this to people, the mention of freedom somehow brings offense. For Jesus to say they need freedom implies that they're not already free. What is Jesus thinking? Can't he see how strong they are, how independent? What great assets they would be for his organization. He should be honoring them, not insulting them like this. They're already free. Can't Jesus see that? So they retort, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. 
How can you say that we shall be set free? We have never been slaves of anyone, seriously? 400 years of bricks and whips and scars and devastation have evaporated into the air of self-confident, self-reliant freedom. No slavery, no rescue, no telling the story of the incredible acts of God, and bonus, no need to depend on anyone but yourself now. Why couldn't they follow Jesus? Because they couldn't remember, or rather, they wouldn't. These are folks who had eaten the Passover meal. They had swallowed the memories of their people every single year, and they did not want to identify with emaciated and oppressed bodies, so they just moved on. When they blocked out that memory, they missed the memory of a compassionate, rescuing God who was now actually standing right before their faces, offering them freedom again. Here is Jesus, ready to rescue. Here is the Lamb of God offering his blood so that the threat of death will pass over once again. Here is Jesus standing at the sea offering to part the waters through baptism. And will they take him up on it? No thanks, they say. We don't recall ever being slaves. We're just fine as we are, thanks. We have edited the memory of our own story so that we don't have to depend on anyone but ourselves, Jesus. So you keep your rescue for someone else who really needs it. If we forget how bad things really were, we won't be able to remember how good God really is. The Bible is full of stories that people would really rather not tell. Prostitutes in the family tree, Denials and betrayals by those closest to the Lord at just the wrong moment. Darkness and abandonment and a scandalous death on the cross. But if we cut out these stories, we don't get to remember what comes next. Life is hard, but God is good. That is one sentence, and if you cut half of it, you miss the other half. In this world, you will have trouble don't like that part? Then you don't get to hear this. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. We don't remember well, friends. We definitely don't remember well alone. That's the whole reason for a meal around a table to sit with friends. That's the reason when we pray, we say, our Father, not my Father. It's the reason we stand at a table somewhere on this campus every weekday, and we eat bread, drink wine, and swallow our memories, hoping that even though we weren't standing at the cross, God will bring that story into the present and help us to find our stories with his story. Memory is vast. It's hard to keep it together. So we have to stand together as a community of God. We have to tell this story or the past will be erased. A friend of mine and her husband were uh, driving through California on vacation, and they found themselves on a Sunday having a chance to worship at a small Episcopal church. Now, my friend is a pastor, 
And so for her, visiting churches comes not only with joys, but also with some baggage. I know this struggle firsthand. Being a pastor who visits other churches is like being a backseat driver in every single worship service you ever go to. I mean, when things go well, your brain is busy taking notes. We could do that. Yeah, we'll take, okay, I'll, we'll try that next week. That'll preach in my sermon next week. And when things go wrong, you can't help but mentally correct them, right? As if you could help in some way. And so my friend was sitting there trying to turn off her leader brain and turn on her worshiper brain. She was settling into the pew and willing herself just to listen, just to absorb on this particular day of worship when the service began to fall apart. I mean, first, the priest lost his place in the sermon. I mean, that that happens to all of us. We'll just say that. But it took a while for him to find his footing again, and there was a lot of awkward pauses. And then it happened more than once. Then as the, the comforting, familiar words of the communion liturgy were unfolding in rhythmic progression, the priest lost his place again during communion. He stopped, and he fumbled, and he started back up at the wrong spot. And it was such a mess that the congregation, they actually began reading the leader's lines, the ones not in bold that you're not supposed to read. The congregation began to prompt the priest by reading his lines so he could find where he was just so they could keep the service going. And for my friend, the pastor, that was unnerving. She found herself unable to worship, uncertain of what was happening. And when the service ended, she and her husband went to exit when a a nice young woman from the congregation approached them and welcomed and thanked them for worshiping with them. And then she, she lowered her voice and she said this with a kind smile, I'm so sorry, our service isn't usually this disjointed, but our priest is in the early stages of Alzheimer's. And when he forgets his part, we just read it for him until he remembers and joins in again. And my pastor friend was stunned. I mean, what she had witnessed was not a disaster, it was the church. What she assumed was a failure at doing church was actually the church at its best. Here was a church that did not demand perfection. They did not discard their pastor as soon as things got rough They were loving him through deep weakness and struggle, raising their voices as his declined. And the flock was leading the shepherd, taking his hand, walking through the sea together, walking alongside and helping him stay course, sticking with him even when his own memory began to betray him. Sometimes when memory fails, and it does, we all forget We need each other. We lose our place. We we have to start again. Sometimes when the stars are falling in our lives, other voices rise as ours falters. People say the truth around us until we can say the truth again. All of your stories have times that have been hard to bear. Life is hard, but God is good. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. 
He has overcome the world. So when we're tempted to just cut out the hard parts, let's help each other. Put your finger on the page. Point to it. He is with you. He will never forsake you. Do it in remembrance. Let's pray. God, life is hard in so many different ways, and we have noticed many of them this year. But God, you are good in more ways than we have yet to realize. Your goodness is so vast that we have barely dipped our toe in it. What we do not know about you will take a lifetime and an eternity to discover. And so, God, we are all in. Help us to remember. Even when it hurts, help us to remember. Even when there are things we would rather cut out. Because, Lord, we want to know your goodness in our past, our present, and our future. In Jesus' name, amen.